Now the word of the Lord. To the choir. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. When you hear the psalmist say, what is man? I think in, in, in English, especially perhaps in modern English, when we ask a question like, what is man? The, we, our, our mind naturally goes towards more of a philosophical bent. Sort of like, ah, oh, this is, a, this is a, a theoretical question to be answered by, well, what is man? What, or sort of what is, but that's not the way our text asks the question. To understand the question, think about some parallels. For instance, in 2 Samuel 9, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, comes before David, he falls on his face and pays homage. And when David promises kindness to Mephibosheth for the sake of his father Jonathan, Mephibosheth says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Likewise, in 2 Kings 8, when Elisha speaks to Hazael of Syria, prophesying how Hazael will become king and torture and destroy Israel, Hazael responds, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Or David's own response to Saul in 1 Samuel 18, when Saul offered him his daughter in marriage. Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? So the, the question, who am I, what is, what am I, is very much a, a, taking a posture of subordination, a posture of humility. Indeed, this is also done in relation to God. When, when Moses says to God at the burning bush, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Or David speaking to God in 2 Samuel 7, after God has established his covenant with him. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Or, or Solomon in 2 Chronicles 2. Who am I to build a house for the Lord my God? So the question, who am I, what am I, that you should do such kind things for me, is very much in the background of Psalm 8. What is man? that God would give dominion over all things to him? Who are we that God would crown us with glory and honor? Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. The song of the heavenly host has strong echoes of Psalm 8. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For that matter, the, the message of the angel is very much the central message of Psalm 8. You have made him a little lower than the gods and crowned him with glory and honor. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And think about the sign that you see in both. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. In other words, the message of Psalm 8 is the message of Christmas. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Uh, I've given you the, the structure of the psalm in your bulletins, I, I, I'm, but I'm not going to preach the sermon in the structure of the psalm. A rather better way of putting it is the sermon, the, the structure is a chiasm. And so if I, if I took you all the way through the chiasm in order, then we'd be ending sort of back where we started. But I want to end where the, at the center of the psalm. So we'll be looking at the A sections together, the majestic name of Yahweh, and then the B sections, the glory of God revealed in the heavens, the earth, and the seas. And then the C sections, turning to man, the dominion that God has given to man. I mean, the son of man coming by a C section. Uh, and then, of course, at the center, the son of man crowned with glory and honor. The psalm begins where it should, with the Lord, with Yahweh. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We've seen that the Psalter begins with the blessed man, the one who walks not in the ways of the wicked, but who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Psalm 2 then spoke of the Son of God, the Davidic King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who inherits the nations. And Psalm 2 closed with the call, blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
And so during Advent, we went through Psalms 3 through 7, exploring the theme of refuge, showing that the Lord is our refuge, who delivers us from our enemies. Um, It's worth noting that Psalms 9 through 18 will come back to that theme of refuge and deliverance, alternating between thanksgiving and petition. And so Psalm 8 really stands out in the middle of this opening section of the Psalter. But when you understand the question, what is man? This is the response to the divine blessing. In a sense, you could say Psalm 8 is now the response to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 had talked about how the Lord, you know, God had said to David and to David's son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And God has been David's refuge and God has been our refuge in David. And so now David sings in Psalm 8, who am I? Who, what is man that you should do such great things for us? Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise which give th- gives thanks to God for his marvelous grace to the house of David. Uh, many have, have said that, oh, Psalm 8 is all about creation. I would say, sort of. Psalm 8 is all about how the creation points to the new creation. You might say, well, but you know, look at verse 3, speaking of the, the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. And then verse 6, the parallel section at the end speaks of God giving man dominion over all the works of his hands, putting all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. But if all you do is see Psalm 8 pointing you back to Genesis 1 and 2 and thinking about creation you'll actually wind up missing what Genesis 1 and 2 were doing. Because what is the point of creation? What was the point of God putting all things under Adam's feet? And also, if you think about what Psalm 8 is doing, there are some things here that don't fit what happened at creation. Think of verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Well, uh, back in Genesis 1-2, you could say there was an enemy, because, of course, we hear about the serpent in chapter 3, but there's no avenger because there's no sin. And for that matter, in Genesis 1 and 2, there are no babies, at least not yet. Besides, when Adam rebelled and sinned, Genesis 3 makes it clear that Adam will now toil in the creation. He's not really fully the master of creation anymore. He's more of a wretched laborer. He doesn't command the earth, but when he seeks to bring forth crops, the earth torments him with thorns and thistles. You've probably had that experience when you've done any sort of gardening. Our dominion is contested. (laughs) Let's put it that way. But Psalm 8 does speak of man in the glorious language of Genesis 1 and 2. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings... uh, literally Elohim, the gods, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Why does Psalm 8 speak this way? Because Psalm 8 is speaking of the new creation. When did the new creation start? Well, the beginnings of the beginnings came in the Exodus. In Exodus 4, God declares, 
Israel is my son, my firstborn. When God called Israel out of Egypt, he caused the new creation to begin. Just as he brought the earth out of water in the first creation, so also he caused the Israelites to be brought through water in the Red Sea. A new humanity is being brought forth out of Egypt, out of the land of death. And it's a picture of what we'll be doing later this morning with the baptism of Eloise. And just as he caused his spirit breath to be breathed into Adam, the original king, so also he caused his spirit breath to come upon Saul, and then when Saul failed, upon David. And we saw this in Psalm 2 when God declared to the son of David that today you are my son, today I have begotten you. What you have in Old Testament Israel is a picture of the kingdom of God, a picture of the new creation. It's not yet the real thing, the full thing. That's what Jesus will bring. But it's a picture. God is showing, here's what I'm doing. Here's where the story is going. And so in Psalm 8, David rejoices in that picture. He sees by faith the kingdom of God is being restored. And he sees this because he is sitting on the throne. He sees the Son of Man sitting on the throne in the midst of the promised land. And he sees the beginning of the fulfillment of what God had promised to Adam. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength. Babes and infants here can be taken literally in one sense, but also uh, think about Israel. At this time in history. Israel's not a powerful nation. Israel is a puny, feeble nation. And yet, because the God of heaven and earth dwells here in the midst of Israel, because he has put all things under the feet of the son of David, this will still the enemy and the avenger. I mean, in one sense, you'd, you'd be, it'd be understandable that you might say, he's crazy. He thinks this is the beginning of the new creation. This little itty bitty puny little country with no power, no strength. They're just, you know, one bad political move away from obliteration. He's nuts. Well, yeah. And he's just about as nuts as the apostles who, you know, said, hey, you know, Jesus is risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. And this, this gospel is going to go forth to the ends of the earth and all nations will bow the knee. And I mean, quite frankly, when you look at how, you know, what a puny little thing starts in the first century, you'd say they were crazy. But, and it's understandable that people tell us we're crazy today too. Although, have you noticed, the gospel actually has now spread all over the earth and what, what God said has come to pass. And the gospel has gone forth and the kingdom has come and the new creation has begun in the lives of people all over the world who are changed by a story? Amen. This story that has, in every generation, looks foolish and absurd, yet continues to go forth throughout all the earth and bring life and hope in the midst of darkness and death. And so David reflects, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And, and yes, In one sense, this points to Israel as the new humanity in David's day, but especially the son of God, the Davidic king, because David is the new Adam, the new son of God. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. Psalm 2. 
God promised David that he would establish the throne of his son forever. And yes, we see this clearly now that Christ is the one who is seated at the right hand of God forever. But that's where it doesn't, it wasn't just waiting until Jesus came. Every son of David in between David and Jesus would have kept singing these songs saying, you have begun this and you have promised and you will keep it going. All through Israel's history, they were looking to the son of David as the second Adam, as the son of God, as the anointed one. And and, and yet, of course, Israel couldn't help but see the failures of their kings. They couldn't help but earnestly desire to see the day when what they sang in Psalm 8 was as true in reality as it was in faith. And that's why the song of the angels in Luke 2 brings such joy to the shepherds, because When God cares for the Son of Man, he cares for all humanity. When the news is proclaimed that there is born this day in the city of David, the Christ, the shepherds are like, it's finally happened. God has finally done what he said he would do. How do you know that God loves you? Because Jesus came in our flesh. He took on our flesh and blood in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And because of that, you know God's love. And he will not turn away anyone who comes to him in faith. And so for centuries, they sang Psalm 8, longing for the day when Psalm 8 would be as true in reality as it was in faith. And that day has now come. Now, you might wonder, how do I know that Psalm 8 is really talking about David and not about just Adam and creation? Actually, if you turn over to Hebrews 2, I'll give you my cheat sheet. Because Hebrews 2 tells us what Psalm 8's doing. And in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, We're told, now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In in Jesus Christ, what was spoken of in Psalm 8 has begun to come about. So Hebrews admits, at present, we do not yet see everything subject to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He was higher than the angels. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 that the Son was the one through whom God created the world. But this Son was made lower than the angels for a time. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Here, Jesus takes on the voice of the psalmist. Jesus is 
is the David, the son of David, the son of man, who takes on the voice of David from the Psalms. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Because when all the promises come true in Jesus, just as Israel was taught to sing these Psalms in and with David, we sing them in and with Jesus. And since therefore the children, verse 14, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? What is man? I'll tell you who man is. Man is no longer Adam. Man is no longer the rebel and the cursed one. Man is now Jesus Christ. It's why he's called the second Adam, the last Adam. What does Adam mean in Hebrew? Man. Who is man? Who is Adam? Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam. Humanity is now seen in him. Man is now the obedient and glorious one. Jesus made perfect through suffering. Jesus crowned with glory and honor as the second and last Adam, the one who restores humanity to the fellowship of God and the dominion over creation. Hebrews explains that the incarnation of Christ was necessary for our salvation. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The children of God were in bondage. Remember Egypt? Only worse, because this was no mere mortal who held sway over us. The devil held us captive. He had usurped the dominion of the earth. The only way for man to be restored to his rightful place was for a man to destroy the one who had the power of death. But as the psalmist had pointed out centuries before, what is man that you are mindful of him? How could man, bound in slavery by the devil, overthrow his captor? How could the one who lived under the power of death destroy death? The offspring of Abraham, the seed of the woman, was bound by the fear of death. A few weeks ago in our Advent readings, we heard Isaiah in Isaiah 59, saying that the Lord looked and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. He saw that there was no man. There were plenty of men in Israel in those days. No, there was no man in Israel. There were lots of men and women held under the power of death, living in the fear of death. And there were some who hoped diligently in the salvation that God would bring. There were even some good kings, really good kings, who sought to embody that hope. But all the best kings, all the prophets, priests, all together, there was no man. There was no Adam who could intercede for his people. 
There were pictures and shadows. But if all you got is shadows, you don't have... Where's, where's the body that casts the shadow? Where's the man whose image is shadowed? Where is... There was no man. And so Isaiah continued, Then his own arm brought him salvation. Whose own arm? The Lord's own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. Isaiah had said it. Only God could save only the eternal Son of God could redeem us from our sins. But we had a problem because only a man could correct man's fault. The king must be one of your brethren. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? Because there was no way for God to bring salvation unless one who was true man might, through death, destroy the one who has the power of death. As the Nicene Creed puts it, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary and was made man. How one person can be both God and man is a marvel and a mystery. But as our, our fathers at the Council of Chalcedon put it after centuries of wrestling through how to say this, Jesus Christ is at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of our fathers has handed down to us. One person in two natures. And the simplest way of putting it, anything you say is going to always be more complicated when it comes to Jesus. But the simplest way of putting it is persons act, natures are. If you just think about what does it mean for Jesus to be two nature, have two natures in one person? Well, when was the last time your nature went for a walk? Now, your nature only goes for a walk when you go for a walk. Because that, so natures don't do stuff. People sometimes say it was, oh, it was, it was Jesus' human nature that, that died on the cross. Uh, natures don't do things. He, 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 it was the person of Jesus who died on the cross according to the properties of his human nature. Uh, natures refers to properties or characteristics. And so it's Jesus, the person, who wept according to the properties of his human nature. It, from the moment of his conception, 
the human nature of Christ was so united to the divine nature that, well, yes, he has two sets of characteristics, two sets of properties, both human and divine. Nonetheless, he lived, he died, and was raised from the dead as one person with one purpose. And the unity of the person is so profound that we may speak of the actions appropriate to, to the one nature as the actions of the person even described in the other nature. So an example in scripture of this is in Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul calls the elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I mean, his, the his here is God, and it's God's own blood. And you might say, well, God doesn't have blood. Oh, yes, he does. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, if... if if Paul had wanted to say this in a very detailed way, he could have said that to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood because he came in the second person of the Trinity and in, 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 incarnate in our nature, and therefore the blood, which is proper to the human nature, was shed by the person who is God, and therefore it's proper to say God shed his blood on the cross. So, but that's where sometimes you'll hear things like that. And it's, a, it's a just important to, to understand. It's why people sometimes say, oh, you know, it, it, people are like, oh, Mary, the mother of God, that sounds wrong. Well, it would only be wrong if you said that Mary was, was the source of deity. That would be wrong. She wasn't. And no Christian has ever said she was. <laughs> there are some Muslims who thought we did. But no, that's not what we said. But when, when, when we talk about Mary as the mother of God, what we're saying is the one who was born of Mary is God. And so therefore, she's, she gave birth to God. Not, not she was the source of his deity. She was, she was the source of his humanity. But she's the one who bore God in her womb. And so it's entirely appropriate to call her the God-bearer. And that's because of this. And that's part of why we... Why we celebrate Christmas? Because on this day, our Lord Jesus Christ was born in our flesh. That God and man came together in, as one person in the, in, the, in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because he is man, he is able to take upon himself our sin and our guilt. He's able to be the one who restores humanity and enters into the presence of God and brings us to God in himself and because he is God, he is able, he has the power to actually accomplish this. Because he, it's something that all men ever since Adam's fall had fallen short. And in Christ, humanity has found its meaning and purpose. As Peter declares in Second Peter 2, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And it's, that's why it's helpful to hear, hear about how the incarnation works before hearing what Peter says here because Jesus unites God and man in one person, the two natures becoming one person. We, as when Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature, that's a sort of a secondary sense. We don't become one person with God. We will always be our own person, you might say. But we become partakers of the divine nature. How can we become partakers of the divine nature? Because our Lord Jesus became a partaker of our nature. He joined himself to our humanity. He joined himself to us 
so that we might be joined to him. He became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that he is by grace. This is what, this is what the promises of Psalm 8, the promises of Hebrews 2, all of this, where the whole story is going, is that we might become partakers of the divine nature, that we might no longer be aliens and strangers and wanderers, but might be brought into fellowship with God himself. And for this we give thanks. And, and this is why we also baptize, because our, our Lord Jesus has sent me to make disciples of all nations. And he told his ministers to do two things. To, how do you make disciples? Well, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. What is baptism? And what do the scriptures say about what baptism is and what baptism does? Well, on the day of Pentecost, when asked by the people, what shall we do? When they see that the promised Holy Spirit had been given to the followers of Jesus and not to them, they realize that unless they too receive the Holy Spirit, they're doomed. And so Peter tells them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says baptism is about two things, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And throughout the New Testament, we see what this means. Ananias will say to Saul of Tarsus, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul will speak of baptism as the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 6, Paul asks, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in Galatians 3, Paul adds, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. But like all the blessings of God, Baptism must be received by faith, as our shorter catechism puts it. The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. All these graces are conferred upon us when God is pleased to incorporate us into his church by baptism. For in this sacrament, he testifies to us the remission of our sins. And for this cause, he has ordained the sign of water to signify that as by this natural element, the body is washed of its bodily odors, so he wishes to wash and purify our souls. Here we have a sure witness that God wishes to be a loving father, not counting all our faults and offenses. Secondly, that he will assist us by his Holy Spirit so that we can battle against the devil, sin, and the desires of our flesh until we have victory in this, to live in the liberty of his kingdom. Those two things are accomplished in us through the grace of Jesus Christ. It follows that the truth and substance of baptism is comprised in him. For we have no other washing than in his blood. And we have no other renewal than in his death and resurrection. But as he communicates to us his riches and blessings by his word, so he distributes them to us by his sacraments. 
And we should also consider the significance of baptism for yourself. Because we, as we come to baptism, the, the, we, should, we should seek to improve our own baptism. Uh, th- that might sound like an odd word, but when you think about real estate, we still use the word improve in this way. Because you own a piece of property and you want to build a house, what's that called? An improvement. So what does it mean to improve your baptism? Build on it. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. And how do you improve your baptism? By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of baptism and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements. By growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin, the putting to death of sin and quickening of grace. And by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. And the reason why we baptize children goes back to the the promises made to Abraham and, and, and at Pentecost through the apostles. For the promise is to you, Peter said, and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. As God had said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. And as Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your house. Infants as well as their parents belong to the covenant and people of God. And through the blood of Christ, both redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them, no less than to their parents. Therefore, they are also by baptism as a sign of the covenant to be engrafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, in place of which in the New Testament, baptism is appointed. And we should pray that God will do what he has promised. Let us be mindful that God our Savior wills that all men come to a knowledge of the truth through the only mediator, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. It is also his will that we should pray for one another, that we come to one and the same faith and knowledge of God's Son, our Savior. Therefore, let us pray, God, that Eloise Philomena Irene Shank receive a true and living faith and that the outward baptism be through the work of the Holy Spirit inwardly accomplished with the cleansing water of grace. As our confession puts it, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered, yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. And so let us pray. Almighty, eternal God, who according to your righteous judgment did condemn the unbelieving world through the flood and in your great mercy did preserve believing Noah and his family and who did drown hard-hearted Pharaoh with all his host in the Red Sea and led your people Israel through the same on dry ground, thereby prefiguring this baptism and who through the baptism of your dear child, our Lord Jesus Christ, has consecrated and set apart water as a salutary flood to signify and seal to us the washing away of our sins. 
You have promised us in Abraham, the father of us and of all the faithful, that it is your will to be not only our God, but the God of our children as well. And so also your son, our Lord Jesus, received the children who were presented to him, graciously accepting them, bestowing upon them his blessing, and declaring that to such belong the kingdom of heaven. O good God and Father, we confess before you that we have been forgetful of your mercies. Forgive us for never having been truly thankful for your grace toward us and the redemption of your Son, which you have imparted to us in baptism. We have never really striven to die to ourselves and to live alone to you, our Heavenly Father. O merciful Father, increase in us your Holy Spirit, that we may recognize more and more your marvelous grace demonstrated in baptism, whereby you have accepted us as your children, and that we be truly thankful and show ourselves to be your people. Graciously accept from us Eloise Philomena Irene Shank, born of your own people, whom you have given to them and whom you have created in your image. Since no one can be pleasing to you except that your spirit live within him, we pray that you grant your Holy Spirit to this child and with that same spirit establish and seal her heart. Also grant that as I, your servant and minister of the new covenant, do now administer this holy baptism according to your command and promise. So may you grant to Eloise inner renewal of spirit and true regeneration, making her your child. Through your name, bestow and bequeath that Eloise be baptized into the death of Christ Jesus, that she be buried with him, that she die to all sins and through Christ be raised up to life, to the service of righteousness and all that is good. As we baptize her in your triune name, we ask that you completely forgive all inherited sin through our Lord Jesus Christ and never reckon it to her. Truly impart to her sonship, and in all things receive her as your heir, fellow heir of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, grant in such faith that as we baptize this child, we might be inclined and impelled to receive her as a fellow member of the body of Christ, to faithfully pray for her and earnestly educate her, that through her your name might be glorified, your kingdom increased, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to these spiritual graces, grant to Eloise physical health, Minister to all her needs and grant to her your fatherly protection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.